The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. Hello everybody and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute for what is our final Fellow in Focus event of 2021. I'm Eve Patton, I'm Director of the Hub, uh, and I'm really pleased today to welcome back uh, a former visiting research fellow who was with us in the Hub in 2017, Elizabeth Shermer, Ellie Shermer. Great to see you back uh, with us, Ellie, albeit virtually. Um, Ellie is currently Associate Professor in History at Loyola University in Chicago, uh, and uh, she writes on work, on politics and on education, but she's also very well recognized as a contributor to various public fora and journals. She writes for the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune and very many other places. And in fact, Ellie, I know that while you were with us in Dublin at the Hub, you also were a regular contributor to RTE, to the Irish Times, to News Talk um, and many other places. So you were busy on that public humanities front while you were here. Um, Ellie is uh, the author of Sunbelt Capitalism, Phoenix and the Transformation of American Politics. But I hope that today you'll also be hearing a little bit about her new book, which is called Indentured Students, How Government Guaranteed Loans Left Generations of Students Drowning in College Debt. I think this is a story that will speak to many of you and particularly those of you who've come through the US education system. The dedication that Ellie uh, provides in her book uh, is uh, for the 45 million of us and counting who together owe more than $1.7 trillion. Um, those figures uh, we'll perhaps again be hearing a little bit more about in this conversation. Um, but the book is a very, very interesting and uh, provocative history and an analysis not only of the debt that's been built up in the US in payment for third level education, but also I think it's a story of the 20th century context for understanding how uh, higher education has been valued or not valued by successive administrations um, in the US system. And I think that that also speaks transatlantically and without wanting to hog the conversation, uh, one of the most interesting chapters for me um, was uh, about the GI Bill in the mid-century in the US uh, education funding system. Many of you will know the very famous Trinity novel, The Ginger Man uh, from 1955. And the author of The Ginger Man, J.P. Dunleavy, of course, came from the US to study at Trinity in 1946 as part of the financing provided by the GI Bill. So I do like to think that even the, the literary side of Trinity is part of this wider story of economics uh, and political history and this question of how we value and finance education um, at third level in particular. Uh, today, Ellie's going to be in conversation with Dan Geary, who is the Mark Piggott Associate Professor in American History at Trinity and uh, Dan, very often I say, needs very little introduction from us because you know him well as a frequent contributor to the Hub uh, at Behind the Headlines and, and many other 
of our Public Humanities events. He's the author of several books on US history uh, and a commentator on things including far-right political movements, white nationalism, and US political discourse more generally. And I think like Ellie, uh, Dan is also well known as one of those uh, academics who uh, is uh, uh, very skilled in crossing over from academic history into public debate and public humanities. So you will also see his name very frequently in uh, contemporary newspapers and journals and on the radio. Um, so again, uh, this is something that our um, conversationalists might want to touch on as they talk about uh, Ellie's work and uh, her publications, but also um, the experience of having been a visiting research fellow with us in the Trinity Long Room Hub. So with that, I'm going to say thank you to both for joining us and hand over, Dan, to you. Thank you very much, uh, Eve. Um, I'm delighted, Ellie, that you're with us today uh, to talk about uh, your work. And um, I wonder if you could just begin by telling us, um, you know, how you got started with this uh, project, um, going as far back as you like. I mean, your first <laughs> book, well, uh, Sunbelt Capitalism, was really on the history of conservatism, Barry Goldwater, um, and uh, you know the, the rise of the of the emergence of the right in sort of mid mid twentieth century onwards. And you've done other work in that area. So, how did you how did you stumble upon uh, this particular topic of student debt? Well, it's it's funny because I think of them as as and, and first off, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Eve. Thank you, everyone at the Hub for having me back, because actually the Hub was a part of the, of the story of this book, which I'm happy to talk about, too. But I'll tell you about how I actually started this project. So it's funny, um, Dan, to hear you the way that you think of the Sunbelt book, um, because the way that I think of it is understanding the movement of industry in the United States from the Northeast, the Midwest, which is where I live now into the south and west and then how and then and then setting up that sort of globalization um the re-globalization of the world economy but yes it did a lot to bankroll the conservative movement yes they're so deeply intertwined but one of the big things that i noticed in that book and it was one of the things that i thought was unique to phoenix but the book the dissertation was mostly about phoenix but the book did a lot of comparative work and i discovered that what i thought was unique about phoenix the amount of money that uh, two big um, manufacturers, General Electric and Motorola, were dumping into this teeny tiny teacher's college into their engineering department, which is now Arizona State University, the largest university, public university that we have um, in the United States, was absolutely shocking to me. And then I discovered when I went across the Sun Belt, that's actually the rule, that these public universities had always been relying on a lot of private money for their um, their development and their expansion. And so the book I wanted to do, I had planned to do, and I'm looking over here at the draft of it, when I, um, when I began my second book was it called The Business of Education. And it was gonna look at how much private money had always been in public universities to really challenge a very American narrative, actually, excuse me, a, a, a narrative that public um, institutions of, of higher learning have recently been privatized, something in the vein of neoliberalism. And then, and I encourage, I always tell my students to read the acknowledgements. <laughs> You're in them, <laughs> the hub is in them. Uh, I um, had to do elder care, like so many American women, and we are now getting a spotlight on us um, during the Great Recession. And doing that kind of project where I was gonna go to campuses across the country and really unwrite the, uh, rewrite the history of American higher education, uh, that doesn't seem tenable. And I was cleaning out my father's house 
And I found the loan documents that I am still paying off that I signed when I was 17 years old, meaning I was not a legal adult in the United States. And I was like, well, this I could do. Maybe this would be a shorter, narrow project. It took me to some places I did not expect to go. Um, and that's how I came to this project. Um, and now I hope to, within the next couple of years, finish the business of education book and then move on from there. <laughs> that's wonderful. I mean, it's uh, it's great when you have such serendipity, you know, in your in your research. And obviously, as you say, it combines your own personal life. I suppose you're one of these uh, millions of indentured uh, students that uh, you write about in the book. And I do want to get to that uh, in, in a moment, but first I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your time at the Hub. And, you know, normally when we do these fellows of focuses with, with someone who's currently here, but this is an interesting case where we can look back five years and see, you know, that particular stage in your process. And the book is coming out now, so it seems new, but actually you've of course been working on it for several years. So how did your time at the Hub kind of help you, I suppose, in oh, it, the project? It was amazing. And so, because for me, and I, I know every writer is different. For me, that first chapter is the worst. It's just such an absolute grind. I wrote the first chapter at the Hub. And I would come in every day and it was such an special, such a special space, not only to have the, um, not only have to have the office um, there so I could hide into it, but also the dynamism in the hub too. I remember the very, the, the wonderful common areas. And I also loved it too, because um, there were so many public programming events on. And I think about it a lot is the one that I remember is, was a couple. I was a part of the one on um, behind the headlines where, we, where they, we talked about the Trump administration 100 days on, but they also did a behind the headlines on um, the abortion amendment. And that was extraordinary for me. And it, it helped me get beyond my project to, to not get so narrowly focused, but to see this world. And then actually there was, I remember this very powerfully, and it's very important in terms of how I talk about the book too, actually is this Humanities in Crisis conference. And I went and attended to it. And I think about that a lot because when people ask me about the book, what should be done? And I make the argument is like, we cannot leave higher education to be primarily funded through tuition because we're asking students and parents to bear the burden of universities with a multiple of uses. We would not have vaccines without the scientists. We would not have rollout plans without the social scientists. We would have lost our minds without the humanities. And it is of course the humanities that give us the critical thinking skills. And so actually to me, the hub was this energetic place that not only gave me a place to hide and work and grind out that first chapter, it's technically became the second chapter of the book, um, but also to just have more ideas and be in places where there's a conversation to really spark me and keep me going. It was just, it was phenomenal. Yeah. No, I know oh, and I forgot one last thing. The Irish Parliament was actually debating um, uh, tertiary loans for, uh, for, for third level higher education, for third level education too, like right when I was there, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I know right what you mean about that first chapter too. I always tell my PhD students, you know, it's the hardest. Uh, once you have something on paper, you can you can work with it. But um, yeah, I mean, so uh, yeah, I guess in a, in a sense, um, the relevance of your work to, to Ireland was evident, you know, at that moment. Um, and also probably gave you some perspective, I suppose, on the US system where I found myself being overseas for many years. You, When you look at the US from abroad, things that maybe you are inclined to, to take for granted or see as normal suddenly become, you know, more strange and problematic and in need of explanation. 
Oh, absolutely. And I was lucky enough to also teach abroad um, my first two years out of, or uh, my, uh, within my first three years of, out of graduate school. And it, it really taught me what I taught, took for granted. It also taught, it also showed me what I needed to explain to students. And so I always joke that the, whenever I begin a class in the States, um, I ask, are you, do we live in a nation of people or a union of states? And they all automatically say, um, nation of people. And I was like, well, show me your identification, which is a state driver's license, which is where we register to vote. And you can really start to see it. And I think um, for me, one of the things I really appreciated about being in Ireland was um, a framework I was thinking about, I actually was, they were actually talking about Ireland as being a young, a very young democracy. And Dan, you and I have had a chance to talk about how much it means to be able to do right choice voting, which is something only one, two place, two states have um, right now. But to see, this is a, the United States is a very old democracy. The constitution written in late 18th century English is almost, yeah, late 18th century English is almost unreadable to modern readers. And just the structures in place to check the people's power is an anthema to how we define democracy now. And I think this book, I think of it as, it is focused on the loan, the student loan question, as a window into a larger crisis in democracy and basic governance. And I, I think that that is, for me, a really important part of the book. Yeah, no, I think um, 21st century democracy function with an 18th century constitution is a uh, is kind of recipe for disaster. I guess we're lucky enough <laughs> that we have to at least have a 20th century constitution to, no. uh, to work with. Imagine. Uh, and I, I definitely want to come back to this, this issue of uh, federalism, that is to say the power dispersed between the, the states and the and the federal government and how that affected the, the story that you want to tell. But maybe before we get to that, can you just tell us a little bit about what the student debt crisis is now? I mean, what its proportions are and how individuals are, um, you know, their lives are affected by it. Yes, and I, I'm going to say that we, you, you're asking me in a, in a strange time because what has happened during the pandemic is there has been what they call a moratorium. And so I and the majority of student debt um, holders um, have not had to pay any of our student loans off. And more importantly, because we have, um, there are different, different programs that you can apply to, um, to pause your payments, for example, if you lose your job or something like that, but the interest on your loan still accrues. And this is one of the reasons why women particularly have the hardest time paying off their student debt because they're frequently moving in and out of the labor market. Um, in order to provide care, either for a child or an elderly relative, um, things like that. So we're in a strange moment, but what we're all watching is that 45 million of us are gonna start having to pay back our loans again on February 1st. It's the end of the moratorium. The Biden administration has made it very clear that there will no longer be any more extensions or anything like that. But before the pandemic, what we were having is, where to begin, the, third largest personal, excuse me, um, the second largest personal debt that most Americans owe is for their student loans. It is only second to their mortgage debt. And that is one of the things that's interesting is that it is true that technically 40% of the population only has, um, for only 40% of the population has a higher education degree, but 60% have tried and that there's a sizable number who owe debt. And so now in the States, you are more likely to have to both borrow your way through college and work your way through college, meaning over 25 hours a week, um, which makes it actually a challenge to finish school 
um, within the four years that Americans expect. Um, and then also we have a real issue in terms of the quality of jobs where a lot of people are struggling to find the jobs that will enable them to pay back that debt. In theory, these loans are supposed to be paid off in 10 years. In practice, that is not true. We have um, people who, for their elderly pensions, what the United States um, people reflexively call their social security payments, they're having their social security checks garnished um, to, for non-payment on their student loans. And we, the problem is where we don't, well, the reason we don't have good bankruptcy data on the student debt crisis is because um, that debt cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. And so, we're watching that more and more Americans are falling behind on these payments. The interest rates keep um, interest rates keep accruing. The debt keeps mounting, and there's no way for this debt to be discharged for any reasons that people are unable to actually pay this off. But it is we we have sociological studies currently that are linking um, the student debt crisis in order um, to people de delaying families, in order to people unable to buy homes. All of these different questions. Yeah, so what you have, I guess, as I see it, is uh, really a story about how many, many individual Americans, their lives are affected by this debt that just, as you say, follows them around, follows them into retirement, prevents them from having, um, you know, middle-class lives, from buying homes, you know, from doing any of the, the things that people would want to do in their lives. And, and on the other side of the ledger, you've got uh, an industry, an over-trillion-dollar industry um, that holds these loans and that's, you know, really benefiting, I suppose, from uh, the, the, the misery that it, it causes to, to other people. Pretty much. And I think the thing that's really hard about it is, so the original loan, these loans no longer um, exist, was called the Guaranteed Student Loan. And it was actually started in the mid 60s. And one of the interesting things about it is that in the textbooks that you and I use, Dan, usually the 1965 Higher Education Act is celebrated for this incredible um, um, infusion of federal support for college and universities. It's part of seeing as a part of the expansion of higher education. Um, but buried in that bill is the Guaranteed Student Loan Program. And it is the tuition assistance buried in the middle of the bill that Lyndon Baines Johnson spent the most time talking about it. And behind closed doors, he and his White House staff worked very hard to get bankers to embrace a program that they didn't want, which was so strange because the guarantee in the guaranteed student loan program was for the bankers. It's modeled off the American mortgage program. They explicitly did it. And that guarantee, <laughs> for bankers is at the crux of the matter. It was not a guarantee that a student would be able to go to college, that they would be able to get a job or that they would ever be able to, um, uh, yeah, that, and or have equitable admissions, not just equal opportunities to go to school, but actual equitable admissions. And it wasn't a guarantee for college universities that they would be getting the number of students that they needed because there's always been for the um, across American higher education, a dependence on tuition that they would get the students to remain open. In fact, um, right around um, the passage of the Higher Education Act of 65, there's actually a spike in college closures and mergers, but the guarantee was for the bankers. And that's at the heart of that industry is the guarantee was for the bankers. But hang on a second, you're telling me that um... This all began under Lyndon Johnson, wasn't he? A, you know, kind of a great liberal president who had a great society, and you know, he had the war on poverty, and uh, you know, he passed uh, programs like Medicare and you know, Medicaid. Um, so it, it was liberals who introduced this. 
it's a bipartisan effort, Daniel. Like, <laughs> that's what it is. It's a mid-century bipartisan thing. And actually, it's funny because you and I, um, my way that I think about L um, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, is I think of him as the last New Dealer in the White House. And in fact, he's, he's an early star um, in the New Deal chapter that I wrote at Trinity um, because he's in charge of the National Youth Administration Program in Texas, where there's the first federal experiment with tuition assistance. And it's a really important choice that those 1930s liberals also celebrated, those 1930s liberals put an emphasis on tuition assistance, not federal funding for education. And it's really important that they're gonna channel it indirectly. Um, but they would never have considered, they never considered a loan. Because let's think about what a student loan is. I'm gonna give you money for something that I can't actually repossess and sell to someone else. And more importantly, the collateral um, for that is admission to a college or university that is dependent on your tuition dollars, right? And then if for some reason I could actually take away the degree that you bought with the money that I lent to you, um, you would never be able to compete for the kind of jobs to make it possible to pay me back. It's just a nightmarish federal project, which is why though people ask, student loans have actually been around for a while, um, ask um, college and universities, presidents asked um, new dealers, appealed directly to Roosevelt. They never considered a loan. They considered this work study project. But I think it's so important in reimagining the new deal that a lot of the new deal a lot of it is government guaranteed um, financial products for the working class, right? One of them being the mortgage program that was seen as before we have the incredible work to show the racism built into it and how it exacerbated racial inequities, wealth gaps, um, that the mortgage program was seen as a success. It turned a nation of renters into a nation of homeowners. And that's why they use the mortgage program as the model for the Great Society um, student loan program. But let me just be very clear. A mortgage is not the same as a student loan. These are two very different things that you're talking about. Because yeah. um, obviously with the mortgage, you have an, an asset um, yes. you know, behind it that you, that you own. And you know, except in extraordinary times, um, the asset isn't about to lose you know, a, a giant Portion of it. And in the case of a, in the case of the federal mortgage, you had to have at least ten percent down. That was your collateral. So maybe can you tell us more about like why they took this approach? Because you know it, it's quite different from obviously in, in Ireland and in other European nations. You know, universities are funded directly. Um, you know, by the by the government, but. In the U.S., you have this fractured power system, right, where the yeah. federal government has no universities. It's, it, it doesn't control any universities directly. The states do or they're, they're privately owned. So is, is that one of the reasons then that they opted to, you know, guarantee loads to students instead of providing direct funding straight to the universities? Yep, that's exactly right. It's American federalism. And the tradition had been to leave higher learning to um, religious institutions, um, maybe public, uh, excuse me, religious institutions, um, states, other private um, voluntary organizations, individuals, things like that. That's exactly what it was. And, you know, Dan, just as you said that, it's really interesting that, you know, George Washington, um, the first president of the United States, one of his great dreams actually was to have a university of the United States in the DC area. It's what now private, um, George Washington University is. 
Um, and I do think, you know, thinking about that early moment, what would it have been if we had had that kind of that federal tradition? It could have made it could have made a big difference. And I think just to underscore this, sometimes um, I encounter Americans who may have heard of what we call our Morrell land grant, our land grant institutions, but you got to look really critical, critically at that policy because that's the sale of native lands violently seized, very important, violently seized, um, and for the most part, and um, sold to for the endowments for at one state university in each state. So at one university in each state. However, that money from the federal government is just the just the endowment. It's just the startup capital, actually. And it did nothing to guarantee there was no mechanism there to make sure that state legislatures actually funded these institutions to keep them going. And that's so absolutely critical to it that even one of those moments where there's this celebration, it actually wasn't. So the choice was in the 1930s in the Roosevelt era, because I think of the Roosevelt era as stretching into World War II. The, the choice was is to take, take it on through tuition assistance to provide the opportunity for young people to work so they could study. The federal government paid the salary. They let the colleges and universities decide who um, was going to get work study. And it was an indirect way of them, because they are, had to have made certain thresholds, indirect way of pushing very high bound colleges and universities, very exclusive colleges and universities to actually start to um, admit the impoverished. And indeed, one of the most incredible things about that early work study program, there was what we would now call an affirmative action for African-Americans and including those what we now call historically black colleges and universities, money directly for them. And that's the thing that people miss about the, um, the GI Bill. I really hate, <laughs> A colleague of ours, Dan, told me that I took a buzzsaw to one of the most beloved pieces of legislation in American history, the GI Bill. Um, but it was also tuition assistance. That's what it was. And the sad thing is, is that instead of work study students paying the university directly for their tuition, the federal government paid the money for the GIs directly to the colleges and universities. Those payments arrived on time, but the subsistence checks for veterans often didn't or they didn't arrive at all. So uh, yeah, as I understand it, then the, the roots of the student debt crisis really go back to the construction of the, the liberal state. It's maybe well-intentioned, uh, you know, New Dealers, but um, hamstrung, of course, by the federal system that they find themselves in, uh, but who are constructing the system on which, yeah, it's uh, bankers who, you know, really uh, are the ones who are uh, funding students to go to university, and then students have to pay those loans off for uh, you know, the rest of their lives, possibly. So, yeah. but, but tell me, I mean, you know, we could say maybe at least that these these New Dealers, their their policies were at least well intentioned, and that they wanted to expand uh, mass university education. But how do things um, develop to the to becomes an even greater you know crisis of mass proportions? You know, with the actions of people who maybe are less well intentioned. Well, I'm actually I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and say something a little bit closer about with the New Dealers. So I make very explicitly that the main reason the New Dealers started experimenting with higher education was because of the labor question. What they were trying to do with work study is get 16 to 25 year olds out of the labor market and keep them off of welfare. That's literally what they were doing. That's what they initially conceived. They do start to embrace higher learning. They see it as actually something 
core, actually important for civic culture, for democracy. One of the um, the other, but also with the GI Bill, even though that was in place and they started to understand the importance of higher learning more broadly for the civic society that they were building for reconstructing the nation, not just offering relief, still fundamentally how they sold the GI Bill was actually to keep, make sure that um, veterans didn't end up selling apples on street corners. They were very fearful of the unemployment and an unemployment crisis like we had after World War I. Um, and I think that's for me, who was, not well-intentioned. I don't know. I, to be honest, Dan, there's blood on a lot of people's hands now from a 21st century perspective, right? Um, and I think in that case, you had private colleges and universities fighting the expansion of public higher education. And you had charities also fighting the expansion of public higher education, which would have been a, they understood it as a, as a, a, a public competitor, a lower cost public competitor to their private college universities for the tuition paying students that they needed. And so there was a real effort to stop the expansion of public higher education, which a lot of business conservatives considered a threat to American values. Um, someone I will never be rid of in my life, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater. Um, he also fought. Um, he actually initially didn't like the loan program. He also sure as heck didn't like the expansion of public higher education. But for him, he wanted to pay for the entire thing to, through tax credits. And that continual drumbeat of just giving people tax credits, which a lot of Americans still look to now, even though they don't actually, a tax credit, what it does is it cuts the amount of revenue needed, the revenue go the government gets that it can actually spend. So it actually retards the ability to, to spend money on basic public goods like higher education, but someone individually gets a tax break. Um, and, and then uh, you the, have- the, the more you pay, the greater the tax break. So it has the benefit to- Yep, and it disproportionately, yeah. it was, it was amazing to watch um, the the fights within the Republican Party that Dwight Eisenhower, who we consider a moderate, President Dwight Eisenhower was like, we're not doing tax breaks because this is gonna just keep higher education the purview of the rich and the elite. And I, I wanna say here, that for me is something really important um, for all of us to understand because there's a problem where a lot of people look at American higher education's costs now and they see the numbers in the past, like it was so much cheaper. Not really, because in 1962, it cost um, for four years of college about $7,000, but the average family income, net income, was $5,600 a year. So it's a way that people are not able to go back in time and realize actually the cost. And that's before we have the other Many the other many other things that Americans are in debt for, for example, our health. We don't have health care in this country. We have health insurance, another financial product. And we also have, um, and then of course, housing debt is a huge issue for us as well. And then there's the credit card debt because the wages are no longer good enough to for people to avoid having to go into debt for basic needs like food. So <laughs> It's not the happiest of stories. I know. I'm always such a, such a bright and sunshiny person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, I mean, I guess it, it, it shines a, a really a window, a window into the wider dysfunction of American politics, which, as you're saying, goes well back, uh, well, back in the past, you know, not uh, recent generations. You have uh, the federal system. You have this archaic, you know, constitution. Um, you have the heightening inequalities of race and gender, 
Um, but you also have, I think, you know, an outsized role for finance and policymaking yeah. and uh, an increase in business lobbying and partisanship. And some of those things that I mentioned there do seem to be more recent or at least have intensified more, more recently. Is that, is that right? Have we seen more, more of a role for the bankers in, in setting the policies, um, you know, more partisanship that blocks any efforts to, to do things uh, better? So for me, like, I do think that it, you can see the role of finance intensifying as it becomes as um, the, we call them the fire industries, the finance, insurance, real estate. And I love that it's fire because it does feel like the economy is on fire. Um, that has been a more intense role. But one of the things that I'm trying to challenge with this book is that a lot of Americans' social welfare safety net is driven a lot by financial products. And that's an overlooked thing that the New Dealers may have said economic security, but for these middle-class and upper-class reformers coming out of the progressive era, they were looking to insurance products for that. So what they were doing was actually nationalizing and making them available to what we now know is the largely um, white working class. And it definitely intensifies. But I think for me, one of the key things about the question about the partisanship is that we have in the background of this book is what I call the resorting of the parties, right? The resorting of the parties. So we have a Democratic Party and a Republican Party by the end, which are divided. But and to me, I just and I don't know, Dan, if you feel the same way when I hear Americans today talking about, oh, what about bipartisanship? And I was like, well, let me talk. Let me just actually show you what you mean by talking about this era of bipartisanship. That's when you had Southern segregationists like Strom Thurmond and the Democratic Party, along with liberal Democrats like um, uh, in, in the in the in the Democratic Party as well. In the Republican Party, you had liberal Republicans like I don't know Nelson Rockefeller. You go back to the 1930s, um, and thinking thinking some of the great Midwestern liberal Republicans, and I don't know. You also had um, Barry Goldwater. So you that 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 resorting happens over the course of the 20th century. And it's hard for me to take seriously this notion of wanting to go back to bipartisanship because it's a really silly notion of what it took for the parties to work together. And frankly, the only moments when we were actually to have these very limited breakthroughs in retrospect in the 30s and the 60s was when there was a supermajority. And that's exactly the structure of the constitution that we have and also how it's actually been, um, been played out in practice. Um, and I, that, I, that I think, is something that we have to absolutely confront. But I want to go back to something you said, which is asking me about like, you know, who were the bad guys? I think for me, and I see that, or I shouldn't say you were not as screwed as saying the bad guys, but the ones with the worst of intentions. For me, the heartbreaking thing about it is liberals and conservatives, no matter the party that they're in, reaching for colorblind policies. One, to hide their segregationist tendencies in the wake of fighting the bitter fights over the civil rights struggles and so inequity that have continued to this day, but also the liberals who are trying to hide what they're doing. But these colorblind policies are actually contributing to the um, expansion of inequality. It was, I have the liberals on record crafting the Higher Education Act saying, we intended the third title, which are, is for undernourished college universities, underdeveloped college and universities, that was intended to help what we now call historically black colleges and universities. And it, that's what happened in practice. The way that they tiered the different um, kinds of tuition assistance, it was not supposed to be that um, um, 
they were assuming that the grants would go to those lowest low income, assuming them to be um, students of color. But because they let, with one exception in the 70s, because they um, the policymakers let college universities decide who got this tuition assistance, they did nothing at the root of the cause in terms of actually tackling the question of who would be admitted and who would get the financial support that they needed. So that what we're dealing with now in this student debt crisis is the majority of the debt is held by um, people of color, especially women, and they have the hardest time paying it off because the assumption was in the 60s, if you just get an education, you can get the job and that will be the path to upward mobility. They did nothing about the historic wage gaps, nothing. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess you see this time and again that um, the way that well, race and gender are inscribed in the inequalities of American law, but also the, the fact that a lot of these policies end up being quite complicated, quite technical, uh, and in that sense hidden from view. And, um, you know, the, those who benefit can, like the people who benefit from mortgage interest deductions, kind of just take it for granted. They don't see it as a, as a giant uh, payout from the, from the government to homeowners, uh, but also, you know, people who are, could be the beneficiaries of government education policies don't even understand that they are, and the policies are filtered through so many intermediaries, private universities, uh, the states, what have you. My joke with my students is that, because as we're going, I'm teaching my law and public policy class, American law and public policy class. It's like, as the more and more complicated these, these things get, the more and more those who need the most help are not going to get it. Like that's just, anytime it just gets this more complicated. And I think for me, what's astounding, Dan, if you look at, um, I believe this is true that if the original Wagner Act is less than 50 pages, um, um, the original Higher Education Act, this one I do know, is less than 65 pages. The Social Security Act is ridiculously short. And now we're dealing with these massive pieces of sprawling legislation that no one can fathomably read. And part of that is because there's such a breakdown in Congress. And this is, again, as you keep saying, like sort of chafing at an 18th century constitution in a 21st century world, that um, really the the only way to get anything through Congress is actually budget reconciliation. And that is not only how Obamacare got enacted, but that's also, which happened at the same time because EDS and MEDS are deeply intertwined. That's also how we got the end to the original guaranteed student loan program and the direct loans um, and the rise of the direct loan program that I used. And so direct loans just is, was a thing that a, most of the, um, a lot of the student debt, our student loan money is coming um, from the federal government. So directly from the federal government when I went to um, started college in 1999, only a few college universities were experimenting with this. I, our alma mater, Dan, happened to be one. So I was lucky enough to get one. But how would I know that? I was 17. And the people who still owe debt on the guaranteed student loan program, because they do, even though that program was ended in 2010, um, uh, they are, they've had to keep paying their student loans throughout the, um, the, the COVID crisis. Yeah, well, um, I want to ask one final question. Uh, there's obviously a lot more we could say on the history, and uh, you've brought historical perspective to bear on this. And it is amazing how complicated American politics gets, whereas, you know, in Ireland, there's, uh, you know, set, uh, set fees. Uh, if you want to go to university, it's, it's all very clear. And for that reason, it's much harder for the government to change because everybody knows what's happening and they all share a common interest. Um, but I do wanna ask finally, 
what what is to be done to quote uh, Vladimir Lenin? It's been you know um, you, you talked us through some of the really um, dark details of uh, American history, the you know the effects on you know, these indentured students. But now I'm being bathed in light now in this uh, surprising afternoon uh, sunshine that we don't normally get here in Ireland. It looks like you've got sunshine there in, in the morning in Chicago, but uh, give, give us some sunshine. Tell us. Uh, uh, what might be done uh, to correct these problems and to fix things going forward? Okay, I, that's and I, I'm. I'll tell you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you the two answers to that question. Like the the one where I'm like queen of the universe, but I'm a very democratic person, so I wouldn't. I don't actually like queens. Um, but the and then the other one about like the realities of what we're dealing with. And actually, um, I don't actually have the link with me, but I actually wrote something. Um, for Descent with the 10th anniversary of Occupy, because I like to think of the epilogue of this book as, um, uh, maybe someone can find it and <laughs> who's running it, as, um, is that one of the most amazing things is that Americans were very silent about this debt. They didn't really talk about it. They would write these painful letters. They were extraordinary, talking about the pain that this has has this burden that has been there forever. That's how I found the students and parents in their heartbreaking letters. And all that changed with Occupy, really changed with Occupy. There was some start, stuff starting before, but it really changed with Occupy. And in these encampments where people were selling, sharing the debt that they incurred for their health insurance. Remember, we don't have healthcare in this country, we have health insurance and also their student debt. And out of that came some of the most extraordinary um, uh, demonstrations and campaigns against not just canceling student debt. And I wanna be very clear here, it needs to be canceled, not forgiven because we didn't do anything wrong to pursue a higher education. Um, and the momentum to imagine actually having um, tuition-free college, a public, I think about it as a public competitor that you would have these, it, that possibility. There is legislation in Congress um, for fee-free public universities, that public competitor, um, a lesser, um, not quite as, as deep was actually in the original Biden administration's proposal for um, the infrastructure bill. So recognizing higher education as the infrastructure it is to have the first two years of college, community colleges would be free to do it that way. So there has been stuff. Sadly, that um, the College for All Act hasn't gone anywhere. It looks like the community college stuff has been taken out of the bill. There's also been a tremendous amount of public pressure on Biden to cancel um, anywhere from 15, the ideal is $50,000 um, in student debt. But getting that to be a mainstream discussion within the Democratic Party, that is actually the power of ordinary people. That is ordinary people coming together in Camens, building a movement and taking it out from there. And that's really incredible. But they are confronting the realities of an 18th century constitution. And right now in these bitter partisan battles that we're having across the country about how um, our legislative districts are being redrawn. But I think to me, what's inspiring throughout this book is the people, when the odds were stacked against them, they still finished their degrees and they still did that. And when the odds were stacked against them in Occupy, they built an incredible strike debt movement and it was really extraordinary. And I think, I don't think that we're gonna get it now. I have the very distinct feeling that I'm, we're all gonna be start, start paying our student loans in February 1st, even with concerns in this country about inflation, about the end of the rent moratorium, um, uh, the end of the unemployment extensions with the pandemic. But I think that there's so much momentum 
I think it could carry forward. And I think it's a testimony to those folks who have really done that. And it's really quite extraordinary and we need to give Occupy the credence that it's due. Uh, yeah, fantastic. That is, that is uh, at least um, hopeful that there is uh, a recognition that there is a problem, which is always the first step to, to solving it in uh, a movement that's really, you know, beginning to push this. Um, I wanna to go to the Q&A now, and if you have a question, you can please go ahead and, and type it in the, the Q&A uh, part of, uh, of Zoom. And the, the first question is from Stannis, and um, he wants to know when the guaranteed student loan program ended, but uh, maybe- you can Sure, it ended, in, it ended in 2010. Um, so there was an effort in the early 90s, we had these direct loan, a direct loan program that the uh, early, it was happened in the Bush administration, it was first rolled out as a, it's called a tester where they're trying something new. There was a real push in the early years of the Clinton administration before the Republicans retook Congress to make that the program. That is what happened under o Obama in 2010. And it was linked to the budget reconciliation that enacted Obamacare. And what a lot of people don't realize about that 2008 election, yes, health insurance was a big issue, but Barack Obama and Michelle Obama were incredible because they stood out there on the two in the 2008 primaries talking about the debt that they held. That was one of their major priorities was to tackle the student loan industry. And they had hoped to do it through standalone legislation, but they always had in their back pocket a strategy pro project about getting this through budget reconciliation. And that is what actually happened. And it was one of those small moments in time, which almost got derailed with the death of liberal icon, um, Senator Ted Kennedy, that just the window was so through. And to me, I think it's such a powerful question that those two were linked because the two things that New Dealers failed but tried to do was to build into their social safety net um, education and medical care. They didn't do it. Those are the two things that Americans owe some of the most debt for. And then meds and ads in this country are so deeply linked because a lot of, we have a lot of medical schools, um, a lot of hospitals tied to medical schools, which is reliant on health insurance. A lot of the money for college universities to stay open is coming through um, student loan programs. And these meds and ads are just so deeply linked. And to get them through on the Obamacare Reconciliation Act, and it was actually if you actually look at the title, it's the Healthcare and Education <laughs> Reconciliation Act is actually what it is. Um, and he actually signed that bill at a community college in Northern Virginia and talked about um, to killing two birds with one stone in this piece of legislation because the Obama administration recognized how linked they were. Uh, very good. Well, the next question is from my um, wonderful colleague, Carol Holohan. And she wants to know about American private colleges and how they're funded. And if I've understood you correctly, they were they've been big beneficiaries of the the way the federal government has gone about. Uh, yeah. Um, the okay. So, oi, um, I my colleague, a friend of mine, she calls American higher education an ecosystem. We have more than three thousand different kinds of institutions. We have what are called for-profit colleges, we have nonprofit colleges. Nonprofit college universities can be public or private. To be honest, when I look at Ivy League schools and I look at their massive endowments and you tell me that's a nonprofit school, I kind of scratch my head a little bit. And also when you have private institutions like the one that I teach at, which are so dependent on students paying 
paying their fees through student loans, also getting government grants, things like that. I also really question Americans need to divide neatly between what is public and what is private. So we have a lot of private colleges and universities in this country, which are not Ivy League schools. One of the interesting things about a lot of, but not all Ivy League institutions is they have no loan policies for students. And so they're, they craft the financial aid because partly this is a reaction to how big their endowments are that the students won't actually have to borrow. And indeed when President Joe Biden made the mistake of saying that he wasn't interested in, if he was resistant about canceling student debt because it depends on if you went to Harvard or Yale or not, immediately Harvard students are like, uh, we don't have student loans. Now their parents probably did have to borrow. But that's a really important aspect of it. And so I, the way that I think about, that's what the business of education book was supposed to be about. The divides that we make between public and private nonprofit institutions really don't make sense because they're actually all working off the same different pots of money, government grants. There is actually some um, federal support tied to um, tuition assistance that private universities get. Um, they also might get some benefits depending on what state there are um, and different kinds of questions. And then also there's a lot of private money in these state institutions. Now, yes, it is true that those students who don't have to borrow, it is because they have the family money that those families can pay out of pocket or pay so much out of pocket that they're, um, that they're not having to deal with the debt that um, families without that familial wealth, and that does tend to be families of color, um, that they tend to have to borrow more. Very much. Uh, I believe Eve has a question. Thanks, Dan, and thank you very much, Ellie. And I've I've a lot of questions, but uh, I just wanted to disagree with Dan for a second because the idea that here in Ireland everybody is uh, in perfect agreement about whether we have fees for third level or not, as Ellie, I think you referenced yourself before you began your talk, um, is very very unclear, and I think it's. Um, absolutely crucial for anyone who remembers the days of fees uh, at uh, Trinity um, and not the free fee scheme we have now. Uh, there are lessons obviously coming uh, monstrously from the US, but also from our nearer neighbors and, and the UK. But the, the question I wanted to put to you, Ellie, was um, more about uh, how you work, because uh, at the beginning you talked about being in the hub and the the interdisciplinary environment that you enjoyed while you were working here and beginning the book. Um, and as I was reading your book, and particularly when you know I got to the final chapters where you're addressing the hard economics of a contemporary landscape, I suppose this is a more conceptual question about what it means to come to this subject as a historian yeah. rather than an economist. Now, I know there's sometimes a very fine line between them, but what kind of momentum did you get from the fact that you approached this subject historically rather than simply looking at the pie charts of 2020-2021? Oh, totally. Actually, I will say it's really funny because I, I do have friends who are economists and they always joke at me. They're like, we because they'll try and... I'm going to use this word, this mansplain something to me. And I'm like, I, I know the entire history of the Federal Reserve, actually. And they're like, oh, God, we forget you're the closet economist. And from my point of view, one of the things that's really dangerous about um, the student loan story in the States is they think of it as a relatively recent crisis. But the federal government actually hasn't collected good data on the student loans until 2008. And they didn't actually disaggregate household debt from nonprofit debt until the turn of the millennium. And then they didn't actually disaggregate household debt to focus are to note student debt until 2003. And 
for me as a historian, what was key is looking at the ideas behind it and to go deeper and to find that very human story. And I always joke that I was, this is a story about big bad bank. Uh, it's not a story as much about big bad bankers. They come in at the end, but politicians doing the wrong thing. Um, and, and, but I wanted to put students and parents at the front of everyone. But as a historian, as a humanist, finding that very human story, understanding the human choices, the decisions, the thinking behind the construction, the choice to go to tuition assistance, the choice to model this off of a mortgage program that seemed to them to be working in the 60s was so, so important, but also the human toll and listening to people as they spoke in the archives. And to me, one of the most heartbreaking things was to just encounter these boxes and boxes of letters of people where it just wasn't working when we are told it was cheap then and then to find the correspondence within the Nixon administration that labeled all of that just grief mail and that for me was the just the most crushing thing about it that this very human story this very human pain was completely overlooked and hidden from view but they were writing they were talking and that, that for me is the importance of the humanist perspective and also going beyond the pie charts about why would you ever think that it was a good idea to give a loan for something that you can't repossess and sell away and just the lack of value and especially finding that the whole idea of allowing or of pushing for tuition assistance was fundamentally rooted in dinking around with the labor market. That's what it was about. And here we are decades later. Um, now, Eve, I didn't mean to say that there was agreement in Ireland about this, more just that it's transparent uh, in a way that it maybe isn't in the American uh, debates. Um, yeah, I think this, this has been a wonderful discussion, Ellie. We did have a question from uh, Stannis about how to get your book, uh, <laughs> which I, I, yes, I, I, not, I, I, I don't know if you planted that one or not, but um, I did not. I did case, not. I'm sorry if, I, if we didn't make those details clear uh, at, the, at the outset, but Eva has um, put the details into the chat so you can all um, check there and uh, the book is entitled uh, Indentured Students. Um, do you have anything else that you want to say as we come to the very end of our hour here, Ellie? Oh, one thing is um, Stannis put a chat and I'll do it really quickly. There's a, there's an interesting kind of loan in the States, um, which are um, these loans, and sometimes you have Yale University student loans. So some college universities do have small loan programs. There's also some that experimented with um, these strange um, sort of investor loans that Milton Friedman actually called. He's like he 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 said, I don't think people will really like um, the, these these loans where an investor invests in a student. He's like it might seem like too much like slavery, which is actually one of the Republican solutions right now to the student debt crisis. And I was like, you know, if Milton Friedman is calling something like slavery, I don't know, you guys, you might want to back off on this question. One of the most conservative economists that we have at the 20th century. Um, I think for me, I think it's very powerful. Um, Eve's um, point about the Irish thinking about the fees that they incur and the questions alone, looking at its neighbors not to, and across the pond and what's going on. And especially, I think for me, one of the most powerful parts of this and why I really loved originally the, the end of the book because of the work I'd done in Ireland and, and I had actually written a lot of this book on um, traveling around Europe um, 
was actually to show how the student loans had gone global. And I'm actually now going to do that as a separate project um, uh, with, a, with other scholars who are specialists in different countries' loan schemes. So we can have a global conversation about this about this. Um, and I think for me is like, it's painful for me because I see this, I'm still paying this off, but I also think about my students. Um, and that the American example is a cautionary tale. Um, and it is just such a profoundly cautionary tale and especially who it values, who it privileges. And also I think what subjects it, it privileges as well. And I think I don't know, I, I keep coming back to that Humanities in Crisis conference that was there when I was at Trinity. We are the first cut. And we have such an important perspective on these questions that you can't just leave it to the economists or their political scientists with their, with their charts because you lose that very human perspective, that very human understanding about why we make the changes we do and all of the intended consequences, the student loan um, program, the Higher Education Act, intended to create a student loan industry when there was not one. But also the unintended consequences and the very real pain that an individual feels and a country feels with the choices as they as they throw out. And I, I guess uh, what you've shown really nicely here is the the importance of history to these discussions, of the humanities and discussions, but also you know the fact that if you have a student loan industry that's based on students taking out lots of money they're far more inclined maybe to not do the humanities, but to do something that they can see will lead to an, some immediate job opportunity, business or engineering or the like, even if it's not what they prefer. And so we have a, a country that has less and less historical understanding. You know, but, uh, and I know we're running out of time, but for me, like what breaks my heart about that? And I, I hate to put the a monetary value on the humanities, but I know the world, I, this is the world that we live in. But for me, if you wanna compete on the job market right now, and it, it, is that you have to have those very human skills. I have read what artificial intelligence has tried. They tried to have an, art, an AI technology write a book review. <laughs> this is kind of hilarious. Um, but I, I think that our human skills, it is our, um, it is our human skills, our critical thinking skills, our critical writing, our critical speaking. Those are what the humanities gives a person and they will serve them well in a labor market where more and more is being automated. And I, I'm, I apologize for, for coming to the hub with that, just sort of that very real material value of the humanities. But I feel unfortunately that that is what we're sort of faced with, that you want folks who know that, right? Um, at that most fundamental level, that there is such a value in, there's such a value in the skills that the humanities provide. Um, and I, it just, it, I, I just find it so crushing that it's not as easily seen when to me, it's just so evident right now when we're so isolated from one another during this pandemic, just how important the humanities were through getting us through this, this global crisis, this absolute global crisis. Well, thank you so much, Ali. It's been a real oh, pleasure. I'll just uh, turn it over to Eve to close us out. Thank you, Dan. I'm, uh, Ellie, I'm not gonna disagree with anything you said, and that's exactly the message we want to hear, no need to apologize for it. Uh, thank you to everyone who's joined us today for uh, a conversation that I think has many spin-off questions coming from it. Uh, thanks to Aoife and to Francesca, who've, who've run this uh, fellow in focus. And of course, to you, Dan, because yet again, uh, it's been great to have you with us in conversation. Uh, but above all, Ellie, how terrific to hear from you. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with the next book. 
thank you for joining us today. And I hope you'll come back with the next book and, and tell us what the next stage of this story is. So much appreciated and uh, have a good that day, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Manuscript, book Radio. and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Taimonia Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.